0: So this afternoon, we're going to uh, complete the series of the Brahmavihara instructions with instructions for equanimity, which is the fourth of the Brahmaviharas. And in a way, it's a kind of odd Brahmavihara, because it's not in itself emotional. It doesn't have that quality of love, compassion, or joy that the other three do. So it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, and you might wonder what it's doing in the Brahmaviharas, but I'll explain that as we get into it. Equanimity is one of the highest mundane states in the realm of the Buddha's teachings. The highest state is the non-mundane or supramundane or transcendent state of nirvana or nirvana. The unconditioned, it's the goal that the path of liberation leads to. But short of that attainment, equanimity is probably the highest state on the journey to Nibbana. It is the last of the Brahma-Viharas. It is the seventh of the seven factors of enlightenment. It is the tenth of the ten paramis. In the progress of insight described by the vasudhimagga it is the last stage before enlightenment in that sequence of unfolding. So it's a very highly regarded quality of mind in uh, the teachings of the Buddha. So what is it? When I first heard the term and explored equanimity, I thought it meant absence of emotion. And so I thought it referred to the kind of deadness you know, that you might feel from a stone Buddha. Oh, about as much feeling as a stone Buddha would have, that's equanimity. But that's a real misunderstanding. Actually, a better word to get into the feeling of equanimity is balance. Balance of mind. So if you look back over your experience of these five days, when your mind was in balance, how did that feel? And let me ask by contrast, when the mind is in balance, what's not happening? What's absent? Reactivity. Reactivity. Reactivity usually the mind is caught up in these swings of uh, grasping or aversion, of liking or disliking, and that's what creates the sense of being tossed around on the turbulent waves of our emotions. When the reactive formations of grasping and aversion die down, then the mind is said to be in balance, and we're not subject to so much push and pull. So in those times... Does that feel good or bad? (laughs) Feels pretty good, doesn't it? Because it brings in a quality of peace that we don't always have in daily life. When your mind is in balance, is metta more or less accessible? It's more available, isn't it? When grasping and attachment aren't swinging us and the mind can rest, isn't there a natural ease with metta, with compassion, with joy." So this quality of balance, rather than making the mind dead, makes it responsive, makes it sensitive, makes that natural flow of love, compassion, and joy easy. Makes them open up in a really unforced and uncontrived way. So this is the role of equanimity in the Brahmaviharas. It supports the emergence of the other three. When it's not there, it's sort of hard to find the other three. But when it is there, they can come out easily and naturally. Also because of the peace and calm of it, it sort of prevents them from tipping over into their near or far enemies. So equanimity supports the purity of the other three Brahma-Viharas and discourages the kind of hindrance aspects of the near and far enemies of the other three. So it's really needed as we deepen and strengthen this practice. The word equanimity uh, is a translation of the Pali word upekka, and you'll see it on the name of the fourth dorm, metta, karuna, mudita, upekka. And the etymology of upekka is looking on so you kind of get that sense that it's sort of a meditative state that's looking on. It's in touch with things that are coming and going, but it's not being so thrown around by them all because there's this quality of observation that's happening. So that's the sense uh, that Upeka is kind of settled back, looking on to everything that's going on, but not caught in it. It's a mind that's not caught in the arisings. So there's a kind of coolness in upekka. There's a kind of cooled out quality. One of the synonyms for nibbana is coolness. So you can see that it's getting close in the mundane realm to that transcendent quality of peace, the peace that can't be broken or disturbed. But if it gets too cool, then it fades into its near enemy which is indifference. So as a Brahma Vihara, the near enemy of Upeka is indifference. Okay, I'm not moved by what's going on, so I don't care about it. So somebody could be suffering next to me, but I'm cool. I I don't mind. doesn't bother me. But that lacks compassion. It lacks the warmth of compassion. So that's indifference. True Upeka has the support, has support for the other Brahma Vihara. So if someone is suffering, the movement of compassion comes through. If we look on someone who's suffering and the movement of compassion isn't felt, then there's some quality of indifference going on and compassion has slid into its near enemy. So just as metta and compassion and appreciative joy need upeka to support them, upeka needs metta, compassion, and joy to warm it. Or otherwise it gets too cooled out and too laid back. So we're really looking for a balance in the mind that has warmth and balance at the same time. And that's the the critical role that upeka or equanimity plays in the, in all the brahmaviharas all the brahmaviharas can be practiced intensively the way that you're practicing metta this week someone asked about this in an interview today you could do we could do a 7-day retreat on compassion we could do a 7-day retreat on mudita we could do a 7-day retreat on equanimity and those are powerful things to do i've i once took a 6-week period where i spent 10 days on each of the four Brahma Viharas. It was very interesting. And this practice of equanimity especially was so insightful because it is basically, the practice is a wisdom reflection. So I want to talk a little about that. Equanimity in Vipassana practice is is mainly developed around um, not being so moved by pleasant and unpleasant experiences at the sense doors, the six sense doors. But in Brahmavihara practice, equanimity is about not being so disturbed by what's happening in the lives of sentient beings, ourselves and others, as it alternates between pleasure and pain. So we apply it to the same people that we've applied our metta practice to and compassion and joy. So we notice how, as beings meet their joys and sorrows they go through stages of happiness and unhappiness in response to the joys and sorrows. And we get either elated or distressed about what they go through, as well as what we go through. That's, those are the near and far enemies of compassion and, and joy. So in this practice of equanimity, what we're doing is looking at the ways people meet their joys and sorrows in finding our own peace of mind in relation to it. So it doesn't mean that everything terrible that happens to somebody, we say, oh, that's okay that that happened. You know, somebody took advantage, hurt someone else, stole from them, robbed them, assaulted them. Oh, that's okay that that happened. It's not that. That would be the deadness of indifference. But we find an ability to remain at some peace in ourselves, even as we look at all the different joys and sorrows that happen in the world. And that peace or balance gives us greater ability to act appropriately in the world, whether it's to speak to someone who's causing harm or to take action for social justice, environmental justice, and so forth. So again, it's not a deadening or a turning away, but it's a strengthening with balance in the midst of the joys and sorrows of life. The classical phrase used in the teachings to develop equanimity is a challenge for most Westerners, but I'm going to give it to you straight up. No pulling punches with this group. So the classical phrase is, beings uh, are the owners of their actions. Their happiness or unhappiness comes from their past actions more than from my wishes for them. This is a statement of the law of karma. And it's saying that basically beings meet happiness and unhappiness based on their karma. Now, I want to say that as I understand this, this is a very broad brushstroke teaching. And the Buddha never said that everything that happens in a person's life is because of karma. We might think that. You get, you get ill, and a friend says, oh, that's your bad karma coming back. You ever have friends like that? <laughs> so, not accurate. The Buddha never said anything like that. But very broadly speaking, you can see, especially in the realm of the heart and mind, the habits that we act on over and over again become the direction of our hearts and minds. So someone who acts from loving kindness and compassion, and generosity, the mind becomes brighter and happier. And someone who acts from greed, and hatred, and confusion, the mind becomes darker. So it's in that general sense, but I would never say something like, well, every baby who uh, was born into the Holocaust and was killed, that was because of their bad past karma. We can't, I could never know that, and the Buddha never said anything like that. So don't take karma as a rear-view mirror. You know, something happens now. Oh, let me look back and think about what might have caused that. doesn't work for us to do it. We can't see. We can't know. Take it as a forward view, pathfinder. This is the forward GPS. If we act in loving, kind, generous ways now, then positive results will come back to us in our lives, and we can trust in that. So in that broad brushstroke, you can see how to some extent beings meet their joys and sorrows according to the unfolding of their past actions, especially their mental actions. But for a lot of people, this just doesn't make sense. It's too cold and distant. So there are lots of other ways to talk about the equanimity phrase. So another nice one, is to say beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. And we understand there are lots of laws operating in this nature. The law of karma is one, but there are physical laws, there are chemical laws, there are biological laws, there are laws of physics. If a car hits a person, the person ends up not feeling so healthy. So all these laws play in And it just illustrates that what happens in our life comes from many, many causes and conditions. What that does when we see it is it takes out the idea that I can control this. We have this underlying assumption. Ego has this underlying assumption. I should be controlling my happiness or unhappiness. But it doesn't work. As you can see from this week, we don't have much control over what goes through our hearts and minds. But we understand that our hearts and minds are formed from many past causes and conditions. And the equanimity practice is built on that acknowledgement and and deepening of that insight. So the classical way is to mention the teaching of karma, but um, there are other ways to say it that don't have to depend on karma. So I'll just mention a few. Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. Or all beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. An even simpler way is things are just as they are. This is a great equanimity phrase. Who can argue with that, right? (laughs) Things are just as they are. Yet it brings that sense of acceptance or at peace with. Um, Another way to say it, doing of Brahma for someone is, I care for you, but I can't control your happiness or unhappiness. No matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, things are just as they are. A very simple way to say it is, um, may I accept things just as they are? May I accept this just as it is? All these, fla- all these phrases have the flavor of equanimity. And that's the important thing, to bring our own heart and mind into some acknowledgement of the truth of what is now. doesn't mean we don't work to change that in the future, but right now to come into peace with it, we develop this quality of equanimity. Another difference with equanimity as a Brahma Vihara is we're not sending it to other people. We're not trying to make them equanimous. We're trying to find equanimity ourselves in relation to their life. So then you can start to see how it offsets the near enemy of compassion, you know, which is um, despair or grief about the overwhelm of suffering. May I come into balance myself with the way things are for this person? Or with mudita, the far enemy of envy, when somebody seems to be doing a little too well, a little too happy in their life, then this quality of balance lets that be the way it is. And understand that maybe there were particular laws that brought those conditions into effect for that person. So this is the understanding behind the equanimity practice. As we get into the meditation, I'll mention the phrases again so you don't have to remember them all, and then they'll be posted uh, along with all the others on the board. Outside, so you can take a look at them later. So, ready to dive in? Okay. And I have to say, I find this a really powerful practice. That, when carried out, it does have the quality of bringing more peace into the mind. With all the different Brahma Vihars, we start where they're easiest. And where equanimity is easiest is for the neutral person. So, it's true, isn't it? That's who we'll be starting with. So, sit comfortably. Just let your awareness come into the body. Feel yourself breathing. Coming into the heart center, connecting with the breath there. Mm -hmm. And then inviting in your neutral person If you can, get a picture of them. Remember where you've crossed paths. You may not know them well, but let yourself feel what what you know of their character. And if you have any intuitions about what might be making them happy, how they might be meeting with sorrow, So appreciating again that the neutral person is a whole universe of life experience and meaning, and a whole range of happiness and unhappiness. And then you can just begin to repeat this this equanimity reflection. I mentioned the classical phrase and a few alternatives. You are the owner of your actions. Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your past actions more than on my wishes for you. Beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. As you say this, you remember that the laws include karma and a number of other laws, physical, chemical, biological, environmental, I care for you, but can't control your happiness or unhappiness. Things are just as they are. I accept this just as it is. So you might just try on a few of these phrases and see which one you resonate with most. And then try to select one phrase over this period that you'll use in your equanimity practice. Try to hold your neutral person's uh, felt presence as you say the phrase, so that the phrase really applies to a person, to this person. Now bringing in either your friend or your benefactor, wherever you feel a stronger connection right now, as you connect with this person whom you know better, let yourself remember the range of happiness and unhappiness that's in their life right now. Things going well, things that are difficult. then repeating your equanimity phrase for your friend or benefactor. You are the owner of your actions. Your happiness and unhappiness depend on your past actions more than on my wishes for you. Or I care for you but can't control your happiness and unhappiness. Or whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. Or may I accept this just as it is? And if you'd like to try this, bring in your difficult person. If you'd rather not, just continue with your friend or benefactor. If you'd like to try a few minutes with your difficult person, bring them into the equanimity. As you connect with them, also get a feel for the range of happiness or unhappiness in their life. Has their mind been shaped by compassion, by love, by generosity? Has it been shaped by more painful obscurations, selfishness, hatred, fear? Reflecting with your equanimity phrase, you are the owner of your actions. Your happiness and unhappiness depend partly on your past actions. Beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. I care for you but can't control your happiness or unhappiness. And finally, bringing in yourself as a subject for equanimity. Come in touch with yourself through your felt sense here and now, through the body and mood. Or bring in an image of yourself, memory or photo And as you connect with yourself, just bring to mind the range of joys and sorrows in your life at this period. In recent times, what things have been going well, what things have been difficult or painful And I hope you can feel how the other Brahmaviharas viharas all help to hold looking at this range of joy and sorrow. You can look at them through the eyes of metta, of compassion, of appreciative joy, and hold them in that way. And then repeating the equanimity phrase for yourself. I am the owner of my actions. My happiness and unhappiness depend on my past actions more than on my wishes for me. Or I care for myself but can't control my happiness and unhappiness. things are just as they are. Anybody want to run out of the room screaming during that? <laughs> Sometimes it can be a hard one to get in touch with. Was it interesting for you? It can be a really interesting reflection. Uh, it's, I find it a really useful meditation with family members who are having a hard time. Because with family members, we can feel the pain, and so we naturally want to go to compassion for them, but we also feel this huge responsibility. I must be able to fix this. If I just do the right thing, I'll sort out my sister's life for her. And we can't, we can't do that. And so this meditation reminds us of that. And one way that uh, I sometimes share as an equanimity line is all beings have their own journey. And this just kind of bows in that direction. Everybody has their own journey. And the amount that one person can influence in others is, is limited. It's really about our own individual choices. So with family members, often combining compassion with equanimity gives us a good way to hold the big picture. Do you have any questions, comments? Sarah? Yeah, maybe I'm picking the wrong phrase, but I like the one that starts with the, for, for myself, you know, uh, I can care for myself. some reactivity left and you know, not having mastered impulse control um, I just kind of want to tweak the, the happiness I mean, I assume you're talking about not like the moment to moment happiness, but a deeper happiness and unhappiness but I, I want to say something like, you know, I care about you, but I, um, I don't know, it kind of reminds me of, it makes me think of the phrase of like you can't control what happens, but you can control how you respond to it We sort of so her comment was this phrase about, um, I care f- I applied to herself, I care for myself, but I can't control my happiness or unhappiness. Uh, if I can interpret it a little bit, it seems like it abdicates a little too much responsibility. Because another phrase that she likes, she'd like to tweak it in the direction of um, the phrase that says, I can't control what happens to me, but maybe I can control how I respond to it. And so... Uh, just to remember that that there is always free will in responding to the moment, but we can't always control that response either. You know, Even with the best of our intentions, the freedom of choice isn't there, the balance of mind isn't there, the spaciousness isn't there. And so we find ourselves reacting in ways that bring unhappiness in the moment and then maybe in the future. So in the deepest sense, we are all not at a level where we can control our happiness and our unhappiness thoroughly. An enlightened being can, because they've trained their mind in that way. So this is just an acknowledgement that even on a moment-to-moment level, we can't always control it, but we get better at influencing it. Yeah, thank you. Yes? I find myself at times when I experience equanimity, those moments, I sense a certain um, attraction and grasping for it Mm -hmm. because it feels so uh, grounding, so wise, Mm -hmm. and then it just Mm -hmm. disappears immediately into desire or or something like that. Do you have a reflection on that? Mm -hmm. The comment is that when he experiences the moments of equanimity, very soon there comes in a grasping or attachment or clinging to it, and then that dissipates the equanimity because it's actually the far enemy is grasping or, or aversion. This is actually the case, I'd say, for all the subtle meditative states that arise in practice. We have to develop a new kind of new talent of letting the beautiful states be there without clinging because the clinging dissipates them. So whether it's equanimity or tranquility or concentration Or even loving-kindness. If we hold on too tight, that will dissipate. So early in practice, it's just a matter of collecting enough attention that the beautiful states start to come into being. So that's happening. That's wonderful. Then the next level of skill is how to trust in that, that we don't have to do anything then to make them linger. So we just get more and more confidence that we can rest there. And we don't have to do anything about it. But that's kind of the level... Of learning that we have to do next. So just look at that with all the beautiful states that come. Can I just allow this to be? And sometimes just saying, um, trust in the Dharma, let things be as they are, will will incline us in that way. It's a skill that, that we develop gradually. Thank you. Jane? I wouldn't go quite that far. <laughs> Absolute control. You know, I mean, meditation is a mind training. And as it develops more and more, we get more and more control over our reactivity. Again, control is the wrong word because it's, it's not coming... Control makes it sound like there's a controller and there's an entity within that starts to manipulate. But it's not felt like that. It's more like wisdom... Uh, you know the growth of wisdom and loving kindness holds the reactivity better, so that it is smaller and it doesn't at lead into action so much. So I like to think of it more as influence. So all along the path, we get more and more influence about our response to things in life. But until we're really free, we don't have complete choice. So we get we still get humbled. You know, by the way our responses come out. And so we, you know, we just want to accept that too. So especially looking at all the craziness that goes on in the world, we're going to have a lot of emotional reactions to that you know, for a long time. So we just want to then, okay, let me hold that with compassion. So sometimes in doing an equanimity practice, it's good to bring in another Brahma Vihara. Oh, let me hold this with compassion Hey uh, Katarina. What's the far enemy of the picket? And then I also found myself. Um, so the I care about you know, but I can't control your your or my unhappiness and happiness. I felt like that was it was a little bit of struggle to deal with family and friends. But mm-hmm. I found like complete roadblock when I was supposed to turn it to myself mm-hmm. um, because I felt like it was paradoxical. Like if, there's, if I can't control my mm-hmm. unhappiness, mm-hmm. My happiness. Like mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit like Sarah's question. First question, the far enemy of Upeka is um, attachment and aversion. Or you could say agitation. Agitation born of attachment and aversion. And the second question about I can't control my own happiness or unhappiness, well, you know, then what can I control? You could even say, well, what's the point of meditation then? <laughs> um, so this is, this is not a classical phrase. This is kind of a phrase that we've invented to get the feeling of, the equanimity practice. Um, what meditation in the whole Dharma teach us is how happiness and unhappiness come about. So what we learn is happiness and unhappiness arise from conditions. And if we want to have happiness in our life, we have to start planting the seeds in this moment that will let that grow. So, for instance, by planting a seed of metta now, in this moment, you're laying the foundation for happiness to arise a little bit now, but also even more in future. So we kind of understand that if we want to grow happiness in our own life, we have to plant lots of little wholesome seeds. And in, in life in the world, these seeds generally take the form of dana, sila, bhavana. Bhavana, uh, dana is generosity, sila is ethical conduct, and bhavana is mental training, especially in this field, the training of loving-kindness. So in lay life, generally, a life that is really built on generosity, ethical conduct, and loving-kindness will bring a lot of worldly happiness. It doesn't necessarily bring the wisdom of liberation, but it brings a lot of human happiness. So if that is our goal... We know how to develop that. You know, we know how to act in that way. But we also understand it takes time for those seeds to get planted and to grow. So we start to get a confidence that I'm building in my life the happiness, and unhappiness, the, the happiness that I want. And I'm refraining from the actions that lead to the unhappiness. But we have to be patient with the growth of it. And so the understanding is I can't always control it right now. But I get, through this practice, a greater and greater ability to make that happen and to trust in that. I was going to say, I, I use modifiers like I cannot fully or ultimately control. And that, that helped too. You know. Nice. Her comment was that she uses modifiers like I cannot fully or, or totally control. And I wouldn't even use ultimately because ultimately we can. <laughs> but it's a way down the road. <laughs> Anything else? Yes, in the back. If you can speak up a little. Yes. I wonder if you can say a little bit more about this practice with the difficult person because I picked up the, um, the phrase and the order of my actions, et cetera, and I think this is indicative of my way practice for a with this person, but I was worried about it kind of having a tinge of, like, that you get. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is, this is a really important point. Um, the com- could you all hear the comment? In using the phrase for the difficult person, uh, it kind of came out as, well, this is what you get. There's an element of truth in, in that. When we see that to some extent we're responsible for the creation of our own state of mind through many, many moments of mental habits as we've reinforced them and acted on them in the past. It brings a level of individual responsibility for our well-being that is kind of radical in the Western way of thinking. You know, Western culture doesn't have a good understanding of how a mind gets to be the way it is. And so it looks random or like luck or good fortune. But in the teachings of the Buddha, it's because of having planted these, these good seeds of action you know, for many, many years. So what we acknowledge is that people who are in an unhappy state, and often the difficult person, it's easy to see their suffering through their anger or aggression or, or fearfulness, confusion, and we see how that perpetuates their own suffering. But what's not in the law of karma is um, you deserve to suffer. That's not there at all. And, you know, I just look back on the character of the Buddha. If he could have met, and everyone he met, if he could have just taken away the unwholesome qualities of mind and brought them to liberation in the moment, he would have done that. So there was no sense that beings deserve to suffer, but it's just that by the laws of the mind, we do suffer sometimes from our own actions. And to think that's not gonna happen would be like thinking that an apple would get ripe and come off the tree and not fall to the ground. So we start to hold even the difficult person's state, and their responsibility for that state, we can hold that too with compassion. So instead of some, what's actually a touch of cruelty perhaps in enjoying their suffering, we can hold their suffering with compassion at the same time as we understand their responsibility for it. Okay, thanks. Last question. It's like it was, it's actually a comment. It's like she said last night, it must be painful for some of these people to walk around so Mm -hmm. angry and Mm -hmm. stuff all the time. It is painful for them to constantly Mm -hmm. live in that state as it is for us to be exposed to them. Yeah, that's the reflection. We tune into the pain that they're going through that makes them act in that way. Painful for them, painful for us. Okay. I'm curious, for, and did, the, did, the car, did the karma phrase resonate for some of you? I'm just kind of curious. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, it is the kind of classical expression, and um, if it works for you, there's a lot of insight in it. So whatever phrase works for you, I hope it will bring that kind of equanimity, acceptance, and uh, peace to balance and support uh, the other Brahmaviharas. Okay, thanks for trying it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.